Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1195. Romans chapter 1. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through a series on the family entitled Family Matters. And this morning, we're going to finish that series. And I pray it's been a helpful study for our church family to think about some of the subjects relating to the family that we've addressed. And as I've mentioned to you throughout the series, the family is under attack in our world like never before. And the Bible speaks to these issues that we're dealing with. And what we need is courage and clarity and compassion. And that's been my prayer as I've prepared to speak to you this morning. I've been meditating on this passage of Scripture for about three or four weeks. And so if you know me very well at all, you know that means that there is long preparation uh, that has been put together. And I pray that this passage will give all of us clarity and courage and compassion this morning. So I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bibles open because every single thing that I say to you is coming straight out of this passage. And I'm going to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, when God gives up. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with the women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It was 2015 when Bruce Jenner, an Olympic champion, American hero, and famous stepfather, was interviewed by Diane Sawyer about his experience as a man who had lived with a long, deep, dark secret. All of his life, though revered as a model of athleticism and masculinity, Bruce Jenner believed he was really a woman. And in that interview, he defined himself as being transgender. Fast forward just a few short months later, and Bruce Jenner shocked the world by making a surprising appearance on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine, proclaiming, Call Me Caitlin. A super celebrity, an iconic pop culture icon, Caitlin Jenner was born. And the message to the world was clear. Men can become women if they feel or perceive themselves to be women, and vice versa. And the media could not get enough. And what was true then is even greater now regarding the media and our world. That was 2015, and this is now. And today, Facebook offers over 50 gender options to its members. Debates about restroom usage overwhelm social media. And according to the Washington Post, states like New York are fining citizens who fail to use the preferred pronoun of transgender citizens. And all of this has happened at lightning speed and has left many of us in utter disbelief. Which brings me to our text. How are we, as God's people, to think about these matters? And I want you to understand this morning clearly, friends, that the Bible is not silent about these issues. And the Bible is not cloudy about these issues. The Bible is actually crystal clear about all of these matters that our world seems to be deeply confused about. And as believers, we should plant our flag where the Word of God plants its flag. And by God's grace this morning, I'm going to show you clarity from the Scriptures, and I pray that it will give you courage and compassion and conviction to live and believe and interact according to God's Word. Now Paul begins his letter to the Roman Christians telling them of his commitment to them and his deep desire to preach the gospel to them. He also gives an outline of what will be his main subject. God's gospel that is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he in concludes his introduction by telling them that he is not ashamed of the gospel 
because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who will believe. And at this point in the letter of Romans, it begs us to ask the question, what does the world, what do you, what do I need to be saved from? And Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, tells us what the world needs to be saved from, what you need to be saved from, and what I need to be saved from. It is the wrath of God. And the passage before us this morning is foundational to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to our understanding of the world in which we live. It is doubtful if there is a more perceptive analysis of human nature, its sin, its guilt, and its judgment than this passage. This passage is a passage that describes for us the anatomy of unbelief. It outlines in detail the nature of sin and its consequences, reminding us that everyone who does not know Christ as their Savior stands condemned under the wrath of God. And this text, friends, can help anyone who is here this morning who is an unbeliever to see their desperate need for Christ. And this text can help any believer in this room this morning make crystal clear sense of the unbelieving world in which we live. And so with all that in mind, I've got five major truths that I'm going to walk through with you this morning. And the first thing that I want you to see is found in verse 18. And it's the revealing of God's wrath. The Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word for at the beginning of verse 18 links the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1 with this verse. In Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 17, Paul introduced God's provision of righteousness, which comes through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, all the way through Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul explains why we need this righteousness from God through His Son. And it's simply this, friends, because our inherent sinfulness in which we were born with separates us from God and keeps us from living a life pleasing to Him and places us immediately at the time of our birth in the path of the wrath of God. And so for this reason, for the righteousness of God being displayed through God's Son, God displays His wrath. The word wrath refers to a settled, determined indignation and active opposition of God's holiness to everything that is evil. God is settled in his determination against evil. God is determined in his opposition against sin and evil and wickedness. His wrath is his active anger against the rebellion of humankind that from the time of the fall onwards 
God's wrath is a major theme of the Old Testament. And when you study the Old Testament, sometimes you see that immediately his wrath is displayed when an individual is killed for doing what is forbidden. And at other times when you study the Old Testament, it is very dramatic when God pours out his wrath and destroys an entire city. But as time goes on, when you study the Bible, you see that his wrath is expressed mostly in the promise of future judgment. And what I want you to understand this morning, friends, is that God's wrath is not like our wrath. Our wrath is irrational and sinful. God's wrath is always and completely righteous. It is always self-controlled. It is always rooted in his holiness, in his goodness, in his righteousness, and in his perfect judgment. And as a holy God, his wrath is the only response that he can give to evil and wickedness. And the Bible says in verse 18 that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. And I want you to look carefully at the text because what I'm about to show you in the text unlocks the rest of this passage of Scripture. And if you don't interpret it right, you misinterpret the rest of the passage that I've read to you this morning. The word revealed is present tense language. It means it's constantly revealed. It does, Paul is not saying that one day God is going to reveal his wrath. Paul is not saying that one day God is going to pour out his wrath. Listen carefully to me, church. Paul is saying that presently, in this very moment, as you and I are gathered together in this building in worship, God is presently pouring out his wrath on the world. It is being revealed this very moment from heaven. And yet... The Bible does teach that there is a day of God's wrath coming in the future when he will bring final judgment on the world. In just a few verses later than what we're looking at this morning, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so it's both. It's the truth that there is coming a day when all of the wrath of God that is being, being stored up and bottled up right now on all of sinful humanity will be fully and completely unleashed on the world on the day of the judgment of God's wrath. But it is also equally true this morning according to God's word. According to verse 18, that God's wrath is already being revealed on this world. And look at what the text says. The text says that God's wrath is being poured out right now from heaven against all, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It means that God does not pick and choose what sins he deals with, friends. He deals with every single one of them. God is opposed to all unrighteousness. God is opposed to all ungodliness. And when he uses this phrase, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he is not speaking of two different categories. He is just reiterating the same thing, that God is pouring out his wrath on sinful hum 
humanity because of their attack on his glory. God in his wrath is defending his glory and his majesty and his holiness. Now notice carefully what the text says in verse 18. God is angry. He's angry because in their wickedness, sinful men and women refuse to acknowledge the truth about him. He's angry because they refuse to acknowledge the truth about him. Look at what the text says. It says that they suppress the truth. The word suppress means to hinder, to stifle, to incarcerate, to put into detention, to obscure, to repress. It is a continual and aggressive striving against sin. Did you catch that? When truth is suppressed by ungodliness and unrighteousness, it is continual. It is not a one-time event. They continually do this. And listen to me, it is aggressive. When truth is attacked, it is aggressive. And in that aggression, you can see their utter hatred for God and His glory. And do you know the reason why His majesty and His glory is attacked? Paul says it in Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And my friends, when you don't fear God, you will attack Him and you will hate Him. John Stott said, Scripture is quite clear that the essence of sin is godlessness. It's the attempt to get rid of God, and since that is impossible, the determination to live as though one has, had succeeded in doing so. It's not just that they do wrong, though they know better. It's that they have made a decision to live for themselves rather than for God and for others, and therefore deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. And that is the commentary on the culture and the world that we're living in. I'm going to show you from the very Word of God, it's not that they don't know that God exists, it's that they do know that God exists and they suppress the truth and they aggressively attack it because they want to live for themselves. And, lest you're getting too comfortable this morning, by nature you and I are guilty of doing the very same thing. We suppress every single truth that comes from God that we don't like. We try to get it out of our minds and live our own way. But friends, do you know what happens? Haven't you learned this lesson yet? The world hasn't learned it. Haven't you learned it? Every single time you try to suppress the truth, it just rises back to the surface to confront you again and again. And so, my dear, sweet church family, don't you ever forget this, that God is good and God is holy and God is righteous, and he will never, ever tolerate sin. He will always respond to sin with his holy wrath. And while it's true that every single one of us needs to be saved from our sins, the sobering reality is this. Every single one of us needs to be saved from God himself. 
Because just as he reveals his righteousness, he also reveals his wrath. And he reveals his wrath to lead us to repentance and turning from our sins and trusting in his son as our savior. And so I ask you this morning, church, do you understand that the God that we've gathered to worship and sing to today is more than just a God of love? That he is also a God of wrath? That he is a God who hates sin? He is a God who hates evil? Have you watered down this truth about God? Have you suppressed this truth about God? In your unbelief, are you continuing to attack the truth concerning God? Do you see this morning, dear friend, that unless you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ's death on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the grave for your salvation, you are this very moment as I'm speaking to you under God's wrath? Well, we not only see the revealing of God's wrath, number two, in verses 19 and 20, we see the reasoning for God's wrath. And this is what the Bible says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Can you underline that in your Bible this morning? They are without excuse. That is a sobering reality. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul tells us that the truth that sinful humanity suppresses is the truth that God reveals about himself in nature. Paul tells us in verse 19, look carefully, that the world knows there is a God. Look at what the Bible says. How does the world know there is a God? Because the knowledge of God, listen to the text, it's plain to them because God has shown it to them. And the world would want you and I to believe this morning that God's existence is a mystery. That it's beyond ourselves, That it's so complicated, we can't figure it out. And we have to wonder and we have to guess. And I'm drawing you back to your Bible and look at what your Bible says. Your Bible says it's plain that anybody can see it. And how is it plain? Because God himself has revealed himself to the world. No, friends, this is just another example of suppressing the truth. The knowledge that God gives of himself is not obscure. It's not buried with hidden clues and secret keys and passageways that only an intellectual elite group of people are able to discover after a painful and tedious search. It's clear. It's plain. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, By saying that God has made it manifest, he means that man was created to be a spectator of this formed world, and that eyes were given him that he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led up to the author himself. And he's exactly right. God has revealed himself plainly in creation so that when you and I look out and we gaze at creation, we gaze at the stars, we gaze at the sun, we hear the birds chirping, we feel the wind blowing, we are drawn in that moment to the creator himself to bow before him in worship. 
And in verse 20, Paul expands his argument. He's stating that the evidence for God's existence is found in every single thing that God has made and every single thing that God has made encompasses all of creation. Friends, this is what theologians call general revelation. This revelation of God that is plain for us to see in creation is not specific. It doesn't tell us all of the details and the character and the nature of God. But look at what the verse says. It does tell us that he is a God of wisdom and power and divine nature. The Bible says for itself that when you look at creation, creation testifies of the power of a creator. The power of a creator. And that when you look at creation, creation testifies of the divine nature of this creator. And that phrase, divine nature, refers to every single attribute of God. It is God's Godhood. It is His glory. It is His majesty. It is everything that makes God, God. And when you look at creation, creation tells us two undeniable truths. That the God who created everything is powerful and he's worthy of worship. And did you know that the Bible teaches that every moment since the dawn of creation, God has been manifesting himself and declaring himself to all the world? Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And so every morning when you wake up, and every morning when you go to sleep, creation is crying out and testifying to you and declaring to you the glory of the Creator. John Stott said, the God who in himself is invisible and unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable through what he has made. The creation is a visible disclosure of the invisible God. It is an intangible, intelligible disclosure of the otherwise unknown God. God has made himself known to the world. Now notice in these verses, verses 19 and 20, That the evidence of creation is available to everyone. That it can be clearly perceived and understood. And this evidence of creation and a creator leaves every single person who's ever lived without excuse. The Bible says that God will hold every person who's ever been born into this world accountable to his general revelation through creation. You ask, well, what about those people who have never heard the gospel proclaimed to them? This verse answers that question. They will be held accountable to the general revelation of God. On judgment day, every single person who's ever lived in this world will stand before God and not a one of them will have an excuse for not believing in God. Now, let me be clear to you this morning. Paul is not saying that we can be saved by observing creation. But he is saying that in creation, we can see the evidence of God's wisdom and power. And since there is a creation, that is enough evidence to bring us to the conclusion that there is a creator. 
these verses show why we must be faithful to get the gospel to the world. Because the world is in need of specific revelation. The world needs to hear how God, who displayed himself in creation, also sent his son to live among us and die for us and rise from the grave so we could be reconciled to this creator that creation testifies to. And that's why missions is important. That's why preaching the gospel all over the world is important because there are people who have never been given the specific revelation of Jesus Christ. Number two, these verses also teach us, listen, listen to your pastor. These verses also teach us that there is no such thing as an atheist or an agnostic. That is something that man has developed. If you believe your Bible then you must believe verse 19 and 20 that says that God has made it plain to everyone. And it's not that they don't know. It's that they've willingly suppressed what God has declared. There is no such thing as an atheist or an agnostic. There is only one who believes and one who suppresses the truth that has been revealed. And anyone who does not believe in God is simply suppressing the truth that God has made clearly known to them. Number three, these verses also teach, and there's some in here that may need to hear this this morning. Your pastor's dealing with it all. There's some that may need to hear this, that these verses teach that there is no such thing as theistic evolution. That God, in creating the world, used the process of evolution. That is against the Bible. Read Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and it came into being. There is no such thing as theistic evolution. There is no such thing as the theory of evolution. That's why they call it a theory. There is no such thing as the Big Bang Theory. Every single one of these things that has been invented by man through science is simply an attack and a suppression of the truth that God has revealed plainly to mankind. We just don't want to believe it. Because if we can eliminate God, then we become our own gods. And I'm going to show you that in the text in a minute. God is the creator God is the divine designer. God is the uncaused cause. God is the unmoved mover. He is the one who spoke every bit of creation into being, displaying his power and his glory, and leaving every single one of us to bow in humility before him without excuse. This is the God that we've gathered to worship this morning, not the God of our own making. We not only see the revealing of God's wrath, and the reasoning for God's wrath. Number three, we see the rejection of God in verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Look at this verse. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
In verse 21, Paul says that sinful humanity knows that God exists. But look at what the text says. They refuse to honor him as God and they refuse to give thanks to him. Instead, sinful humanity uses the intelligence that God has given them to reduce the infinite God to finite images. In verse 23, Paul says that in our sinfulness, look at it, we exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal creatures. We exchange the weight and the glory and the majesty of God for creatures, for idols. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Presbyterian preacher, made these comments about this verse. It's so powerful. He says, will God give man brains to see these things and will man then fail to exercise his will toward that God? The sorrowful answer is that both of these things are true. God will give a man brains to smelt iron and make a hammerhead and nails. God will grow a tree and give man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a hammer handle from its wood. And when man has the hammer and the nails, God will put out his hand and let man drive nails through it and place him on a cross in the supreme demonstration that men are without excuse because they exchange the glory of God for creatures. And Paul says in verses 21 to 23 that in spite of all of the clearly perceived evidence for God's existence, sinful humanity refuses to acknowledge the glory of God, preferring instead to live to their own standards and for their own glory. And listen to me, friends, when people don't turn to the one true and living God in whose image they are created, they make their own God or gods according to their own image and according to their own preference. This is the nature and the power of sin. And the Bible has a word for this. Do you know what the word is? Idolatry. Idolatry. When you suppress the truth about the one and true living God, it is not long before you are caught up in the sin of idolatry. And when you are in idolatry, you have no thanksgiving to God for the things that he's given you because you feel he's shortchanged you, that he's not given you enough, that he's not enough, that you need something more. You don't give thanks to him and you don't worship him as God. You exchange his glory for things of your own making. And in our day, do you know what the popular God of our day is? Self. You're your own God. You can be everything that you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. There's no limits placed on you. You just got to discover your real and your true self. And we masquerade it and we try to clean it up and call it all of these other things. And the Bible still says it's the same thing that was happening when Romans chapter 1 is written that is happening today. We are exchanging the glory of God for creaturely things that are made in the image of man under our own likeness, under our own preference, instead of in the image of God. And we exchange the glory and the majesty of God for our sinful idolatry. Now, do you have your Bible still open this morning? I want you to see clearly what he says happens 
when you suppress the truth about God and you exchange the glory of God and make your own gods. Sinful humanity and their rejection of God, look at the text, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts become darkened. They claim to be wise and they become fools. When we refuse to recognize God and to have His truth in our minds, sinful man and woman are doomed to futile quests for wisdom through various speculations that only lead to falsehood and greater unbelief and wickedness. When you make your own gods and when you set yourself up as your own God, listen, you become futile. Do you know what he's saying? You become empty. You think your gods will fill you up. You think they will satisfy you. And God says in his description of your exchange for his glory, for idolatry, that you actually end up futile and empty in your pursuit. And not only that, he says, in your emptiness, you gather up more and more foolishness in your hearts so that your heart continually and progressively becomes further and further darkened and you become further and further enslaved and trapped in your sin. And so in your emptiness, you become spiritually dark in your heart. And the end result, do you see it in the text? Of an empty life in a spiritually darkened heart is foolishness. A foolishness that God will reject on the last day. And just sear verse 22 in your mind. The world claims to be wise, but in their emptiness and in their spiritual darkness, they are revealing themselves to be utter foolishness. That is God's commentary on what happens when you suppress the truth about Him and you exchange His glory for something else other than Him. It leads to emptiness, spiritual darkness, and utter foolishness. And here's what I want you to see this morning, friends. This is the world in which you and I live. Now I'm going to read what I've said because I want to say it precise. It's a world that has rejected God and hates Him. It's a world that under the guise of science says that a man can be a woman and get pregnant and give birth and that a woman can become a man. And it's foolishness. It's a world that under the guise of education preys on the most vulnerable and innocent of our society, our children, trying to confuse them and teach them that their gender is wrong and that it can be changed and that they really can't know for sure who they are or what they are or how God has made them. And God says that in your so-called worldly wisdom, you are a fool. It is utter foolishness. But the world would say, no, no, no. Gender identity is more complicated than biology and the body parts that you're born with. And God says, no, it's not. It's clear. I've made it plain. 
You just don't want it. It's a world. I'll never forget when I saw it on the news. It is a world where somebody who thinks they're right with God can stand out in the middle of the street and hold up a sign and sing and chant and say, thank God for abortion. You might as well write on that sign, thank God for murder. It is a suppression of the truth. Somebody has to speak against it. Somebody has to say that God has made it clear and God has made it plain. The world calls it enlightenment. The world calls it science. The world calls it education. God calls it foolishness, darkness, and pure evil. And it will not stand in his presence for his wrath is being revealed over all of it. And I want you to know this morning that to reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe. It's the only reality that gives you true meaning and purpose and understanding in your life. You're suppressing the very thing that can give you life and joy and peace and freedom. And in your foolishness of rejecting God, you're becoming more and more restrained in darkness and sin and evil. The text demands that you ask yourself, have you rejected God? Have you made God in your own image with your own preferences? Are you adopting the world's way of thinking? Seriously, Christian. Are you beginning to think like the world? That's what they want. They want to keep pumping this stuff before you so you'll change how you think. So that you become confused and morally gray. There's clarity. There's clarity. There's conviction. There's courage. Well, we not only see the revealing of God's wrath, the reasoning for God's wrath, and the rejection of God. Number four, we see the releasing of God's wrath. Now, keep your Bible open in verses 24 to 31. I'm going to help you in these next few minutes. I'm going to help you understand and make sense of what, ha- what is happening in the world. The, this is why your Bible is so wonderful and amazing. It speaks right into confusion. It speaks into our disbelief and it shows us a way forward. You'll notice in verse 24 the word therefore. You always have to find out what it's there for. And it refers back to all the reasons that Paul has set forth in verses 18 to 23. Although God revealed himself to man, man rejected God and then rationalized his rejection and then created substitute gods for himself. And now, because man has abandoned God, God will abandon man. That's what's happening here you'll notice that there is a phrase that is used three times from verse 24 to verse 31. It's the phrase, God gave them up. It is intense language in the text, and it literally means judicial abandonment. It's not simply that God withdraws from the wicked the restraining force of his providence and common grace. It's more than that. He doesn't just withdraw from the wicked. 
It's more than that. Do you know what he does? He gives people over to the judgment of a more intensified cultivation of the lust of their hearts, the depravity of their minds, and their desire and propensity for sin. He doesn't just remove his restraining hand and force from their life. He actually gives people over to more intensified desires for sin and for corruption and for wickedness. It is literally a foretaste of the judgment that he will bring about on the last day. This text is teaching that the worst thing that can ever happen to a sinner is that they be allowed to go on sinning without divine restraints. That God says to him, you want to reject me? You want to live for your own sinful desires? I take my hands off of you and I give you to your own desires in a more intensified way. And the text shows us in verse 24 to 31 that God gives them over to three specific escalating acts of judgment. These three judgments, when you study the text, they're interrelated. It begins here, and then the second one is connected to the first, and the third one is connected to the first two. There's a progression that takes place. And here's what I want you to see. Do you want to know how the wrath of God is being revealed right now, this very moment, this morning as we're sitting here? The text shows us. Let me show you. Verses 24 and 25. God gave them up to impurity. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And in the releasing of His wrath, God gives them up to impurity. He gives them up to the sinful lust of their hearts and to the dishonoring of their bodies. Now I want you to look carefully at the text and notice the placement of verse 24. 20, verse 24 is right in the middle of two verses that speak of idolatry. Verse 24 speaks of sexual sin. Verse 23 and verse 25 speak of idolatry. Warren Wiersbe said that from idolatry to immorality, it is one short step. And that's what you're seeing in the text, friends. And that's what you're seeing in the world. When you reject God and suppress the truth and make your own God, the next logical progression is that you become impure and you give way to the lust of your heart and your mind doing everything that you want to do. Because see, when you're your own God, there are no restraints. You set up the restraints. You decide for yourself what is true and what is right and what is morally acceptable. And you can fulfill all of the desires of your idol factory in your heart that you want without any repercussion because God doesn't exist and you are your own God. And when you have a false understanding of God, listen to me. Listen to me, students, college students. When you have a false understanding of God, it gives you a false understanding of physical intimacy. You think there's no restraints and you can do whatever you want. And this is what sin involves. It's turning from that which will ultimately satisfy you, God, to something that will leave you more miserable and empty than when you began. 
So he gave them up to impurity. Look at verses 26 and 27. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul is teaching us that because sinful man rejects the true God for the false gods of his own making, and because he worships the creature rather than the creator, God gives him over to dishonorable passions. You see the progression in the text, don't you? God moves from the sexual revolution in verses 24 and 25 to the homosexual acts of verses 26 and 27. Let me be clear to you, church. The Bible is consistent and clear about its view of homosexuality. It is repeatedly condemned in Scripture. And while homosexuality is condemned, listen, it should not be treated any differently than any other sexual sin or perversion. There's some in here this morning who may be living in willful, blatant, sexual sin and immorality in a secret way and you are so fast and you are so quick to condemn homosexuality when you're just as guilty of sexual sin as they are and what you've done is made an idol of that sin and covered your sin thinking it's acceptable and you need to repent of your sin just as much as they need to repent of theirs Notice what the text says. Listen, I'm helping you. The Bible's clear. It's going to give you clarity. The text says that these homosexual acts are carried out by both men and women. And look at what the text says. It's contrary to nature. Do you know what that means, church? It means that all of the debates about whether homosexual behavior is acquired or inherently genetic can be answered here. God has spoken clearly on it. You don't have to wonder. Homosexuality is against nature the way God created it. And when you argue that it's not... You are arguing that God created a homosexual after his own image. And that is horrible, horrible theology. Horrible theology. You see, when man forsakes the author of nature, he will forsake the order of nature. John MacArthur was helpful. He said, all people are born in sin. And individuals have varying tendencies and temptations towards certain sins. But no one is born a homosexual any more than anyone is born a thief or a murderer. A person who becomes a habitual, unrepentant thief, murderer, adulterer, or homosexual does so of his own choice. It is a choice. It is a choice that is contrary to nature the way God defined it. It is against God's divine design. And to go against nature the way God designed it is to go against God. 
Do you understand, friends? This is not an issue of culture. This is an issue of creation, and it's timeless. It's timeless. I don't care what the world tells you. College student, I don't care what your professor stands up and says. The word of God trumps them. It's clear. You are, listen, you are not going to be judged on the last day by the words that your professor told you. You're going to be judged by what God said in his book. And he's clear. He's clear. There's no gray here. There's no cloudiness. The reason this issue gets cloudy is because we suppress the truth as a way of accommodating our sin. God created man and woman in his own likeness, in his own image. And he put them together and he established marriage between one man and one woman. And he says that what he's joined together, no government, no legislature, no law has the right to change or undo. It doesn't matter what the culture says about it. God is in charge of the institution of marriage, friends. It's clear. Do you see the progression? Sexual revolution, making your own God. It leads to deeper and deeper immorality. Immorality that is contrary to nature. And then look at verses 28 to 31. God gives them up to a debased mind. Now, now listen, I, I believe you're still with me. I don't think anybody's tuned out. You need to see what I'm about to show you in the text. It's going to help you. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Look at the text. He gives them up to a debased mind. What is a debased mind? That phrase is literally used to describe the discarding of pure, impure metals. And it came to include the ideas of worthlessness and uselessness. It is a mind that no longer has the ability to form right judgments. It is a worthless mind. It is a useless mind. It means that God reveals his wrath on sinful humanity in such a way that sinful humanity no longer has a functioning mind. It's worthless and useless. Let me, let me translate it for you and help you understand. It means that they no longer have the ability to figure out if they're a man or a woman. And so they make a whole new classification of existence for themselves. And when that's not enough, they develop a list of pronouns to describe themselves. But the problem with that is that everyone has their own list of pronouns that they want to be used. And then when that happens, the end result is the dumbing down of language and the dumbing down of communication and the dumbing down of being able to relate to one another in a societal way. And then when that happens, it is the absolute crumbling of society. 
And friends, this is God's judgment on the world. Given over to free sex and free love and immorality, which leads to greater immorality that is contrary to nature, which leads to not even be able to figure out how God created you and how to function in society, and everything crumbles and everything falls down because it's worthless and it's useless. And this is the world that you and I are living in. And when you have this perspective, it gives you clarity. It helps you understand what's happening around you from God's perspective. And notice what the text says. This debased mind leads to a whole variety of sins that shouldn't be done. Uh, I did a count from verses 28 to 31, and I found 21 specific sins that he listed that all flow out of a worthless, useless, debased mind that cannot function properly. And when you read this list, friends, it's staggering. It's overwhelming. But I want to remind you this morning that you, you shouldn't read this list and say, well, he's not talking about me. He's talking about all these people who have rejected him and who have, have gone this way as the flow of the text has shown. No, he's talking about you. There's sins on that list that every single person in this room is guilty of and that need to be repented of. And this is a picture. Are you listening? This is a picture of how far man has fallen in sin since Genesis chapter 3. This is it. And he's pouring his wrath out on all of it. Which leads me to the final point, and I'm sure you're glad. The revolt against God in verse 32. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things to deserve to die, they not only do them, but to give approval to those who practice them. This is God's concluding summary on the world. They not only know that what they're doing is wrong, they give approval to everybody else that is doing wrong, and they heap together a posse for themselves, and they revolt against God. Christopher Ash says, Paul's punchline is that not only do they do what they know they ought not to do, they create a society in which these things are accepted and approved. They want others to approve of them, and so they approve of others when they behave like this. And every time I condone behavior in others, I make it easier to do it myself because I create a climate of public opinion in which this is acceptable. And all this raises my sin to a new level of seriousness. No longer is it a guilty secret of which I am ashamed. Now it is a brazen rebellion against God. That's why you can stand in the street and think you have a clear conscience and shake your fist at God in the middle of your immorality and holler hateful, ungodly, wicked things to your creator and have no shame. Because it is pure revolt and rebellion against God. Do you know what God says to this kind of activity in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 9? Woe to them. They have brought evil upon themselves. Woe to them. 
You know you've reached the bottom of society when you're no longer embarrassed of your sin. You're no longer embarrassed of your rejection and of your hatred of God. And you're encouraging other people to join you in your sin in a very public way. This passage of Scripture gives clarity to all that we are witnessing around us. The moral depravity and social decay of our world is the result of the wrath and judgment of God. Do you hear that, friends? I believe it with all my heart. The moral decay, the degradation that's happening around us is the releasing of the judgment of the wrath of God on the world. A time not too different from the days of Noah. And so I remind you this morning that though God poured his judgment and wrath out on the people of Noah in his day, God also gave Noah hope and he provided him an ark of safety and refuge for he and his family. And when Noah and his family went into that ark, the ark rose above the waters of judgment and it brought Noah and his family to safety from the wrath of God for the wickedness of man. And just like in the days of Noah, God has given you and me an ark of safety from his judgment. And that ark is found in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus Christ, when he was nailed to the cross and he hung on those two pieces of wood, there came a time where God, in his wrath and anger for the sin of the world that was placed upon his servants, his son turned his back on his son and his son cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me God in his holiness couldn't look upon the sin of the world your sin and my sin he could only look upon it through his wrath and God's son took the father's wrath for your sin and for my sin so that we can have a ark of refuge in his son the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you repent of your sins and you turn away from your sin that separates you from God that I've declared to you today and trust in God's Son and the work that He did on the cross, you too will be invited into the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the full wrath of the judgment of God is poured out on this world in the future, you will rise above that wrath in the very Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know Christ today as your Savior, I point you to him as your rock of refuge. I want to say one final word. You've been so gracious to listen to me for so long this morning. I won't make this a habit. I need to speak to those who may be in the room dealing with homosexuality, transgender issues, things of that nature. And I'm only going to say a couple words about it. I'm going to let the word of God speak to you. And I want you to hear it this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's no heaven for sin. And, and that text just didn't point out homosexuality, friends. 
adultery, idolatry. There's no place in heaven for sin. Now here's the hope in verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. If you take those sins and those issues that you're struggling with to the blood of Jesus Christ based upon the authority of the word of God, he will wash you. He will cleanse you of your sin. He will sanctify you. He will set you apart as holy. He will justify you. He will make you right in him so that when God looks at you, he no longer sees you in your sin. He sees you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can change your life. You don't have to be deceived by these sins. You can be free of them in Jesus. And I point you to him. Let's stand for prayer.